Jan, your new CD is one that continues on what I understand is your ongoing love and interest in romanticism. Yes, the different facets of romanticism, we could say. And the other pieces, the other discs, we might say, the Chopin concertos, the Schumann concertos, those turn up in concerts pretty regularly by all manner of pianists. But I have to say it's always puzzled me because I love these concertos, the Mendelssohn's. Why pianists don't introduce them a little bit more often into concerts? Do you have any theories on that? Do I have any insights? I'm afraid I, I can't tell you for, for certain why, but it, it is certainly fascinating because whomever I speak to, they like these concertos very much. And I, orchestras now that I've recorded them are very keen to program them, and, and I'm playing them extensively throughout Europe and North America. They were overjoyed, but n normally nobody plays them. And I think there's, there's a few challenges with them. They're rather short, and so they don't fit necessarily as much the standard um, orchestral performance as we've become used to it. Uh, being around 20 minutes each is a little bit too short for, for comfort for those that make the programming, and they are incredibly challenging, um, both for the pianist and the orchestra, without having the same effect as, for example, having learned a Prokofiev concerto or a Rachmaninoff concerto. There is so much passage work, there is so much finesse required and focus on stage, but without that huge wow effect. And I think that combined with the length have led to them not being heard on the stages as often as we might expect. Mendelssohn packs a lot of detail, a lot of material into those 20 minutes in, in either concerto. It's really uh, extraordinary, but it's not necessarily surprising given the man. Indeed, and the, the fascinating thing is Mendelssohn doesn't repeat himself. So uh, usually in a concerto, what leads to its larger breadth is that we have this very clear you know, uh, exposition, development, and recapitulation where we come back and, and hear it all again, maybe slightly different. Uh, but here Mendelssohn just sort of uh, says it once and, okay, that's good, I think I'm, I'm satisfied, we can move on now. Uh, and at the same time, they have this incredible flow and structure to them between the movements and throughout the piece from beginning to end. Um, the way he links the first and second movements, uh, very remarkable. And, and on stage, it's quite enjoyable as well. A story that I've heard about those movements linking together is that Mendelssohn didn't like to hear the audience applaud between the movements of his pieces. Well, and I'm not one to disagree with uh, audiences applauding between movements. I, I think uh, they should be able to applaud whenever they want. Um, but the, the way he links them certainly means that we don't feel that the first movement is such a standalone masterpiece as we do in some other concertos, where not applauding after the grandiose first movement feels like such a disappointment for most audience members, and actually, frankly, sometimes myself. <laughs> You've played this incredible work and you come to this grand and impressive conclusion and then there's silence and we have to move on to the second movement. Here instead Mendelssohn tapers it off and lets us naturally transition into that second movement and it feels like it, it's supposed to be, it's meant to be.
How about uh, we talk about the order of the pieces on the CD? You don't put the two concertos right next to each other. You give the listener a little bit of a break and a slight transition by playing a set of variations. And would you agree that the variations sérieuses are pretty important among his solo piano pieces? Certainly the variations sérieuses are some of the most important. Uh, they have a primary role and a, a sort of place in the forefront of Mendelssohn's repertory for the piano. And the order is very intentional. I realize that many people don't listen to the album in its entirety nowadays. Um, it's not the day of the long play where you'd put it on the player and, and you'd go from, from beginning to end. Uh, but the order still has some value to me. And, and I wanted, for those that come for the entire experience, uh, to surprise them a little and to delight them a little. And also to show, I mean, the, the Variation Serieuse and the Rono Capriccioso, they were not afterthoughts. There were um, a principal idea when I had this concept to record uh, Mendelssohn Concertos, I knew right away what I wanted to place them with on the recording. Uh, so the order is just also a, a manifestation of that. Let's talk about the concertos again, only because of what are their differences that you can see between them in terms of their character? Both of them are in a minor key, but the first one has this forward momentum and this lightness to it that the second one lacks. It, it is much more grounded. Uh, it is, at the same time, much more uncertain. The, the footing is not uh, the same. We, we're not always looking forward. It's brooding more, and the, it's hard to say. I mean, of course, people will jump again to conclusions and say the second one was a more mature Mendelssohn, but I think it was uh, somehow uh, a less um, optimistic Mendelssohn. I don't know how to, how to put it exactly in words, but, but that's what I feel when I'm playing the second concerto. It makes one wonder what was going on in Mendelssohn's mind or in his life. It is noted, interestingly, that when he was writing the first concerto, he had a uh, female pianist in mind. <laughs> yes. And then with the second one, it was right after his honeymoon. Yes, I don't know. <laughs> we might joke that that should be a happy time and you'd write in a major key, but not in this well, case. Well, and, and he struggled actually in writing the second one too. It, it wasn't as easy, it didn't come as quickly as, as with other works and as was the norm for him. Um, and he had at the same time a very important commission from England that he had to fulfill it for, for a festival, to play and, and premiere this piece. And so he had this deadline that he was struggling to uh, meet, which was remarkable for him. Uh, and you don't know, I mean, of course, it, you, we can speculate why, but, but I think somehow this uncertainty and this deeper emotion comes through in the second concerto. Is it less about flash and virtuosity then? the D minor? Well, I think neither of them are about flash and virtuosity. The way Mendelssohn writes is, is unique in that it isn't, the virtuosity isn't at the forefront. It is there, of course, and I'm not disputing the facts because I'm the one to experience all, all the countless stream of notes that he writes, but it somehow on, takes a second plane to the music. And I always say that Mendelssohn is a lot of notes to say a very simple thing. 
it, it sometimes you feel like you're just playing and playing and playing, and and the final result could have been said with about half those notes, but but of course it would not have been Mendelssohn's music then. And and this uh, overarching simplicity is what makes his music unique and why I love playing. Listen to Mendelssohn Jan, one of the things that I love greatly about his ability to create the most exquisite uh, lyrical uh, lines and melodies. The Andante of the G minor just stops me in my tracks every time. It's it's like a, a placid lake. It's it's so it calm. Yeah, it's uh, it's almost. It has the same atmosphere, a little bit like uh, the swan from the Carnival of the Animals. I don't know what it is, but it, it sometimes composers are able to magically evoke this this uh, beautiful landscape that, that paints it, and they paint it effectively for all of us somehow. And that's amazing because, of course, we all interpret the music in a different way, both as uh, a performer and as an audience member. But but there are some masterworks that just uh, evoke these glorious images for all of us. I always like to ask at least one question about the photography or the artwork on a CD. Do you have a copy in front of you by any chance? Well, I can visualize it pretty well, I think. The, <laughs> the back, you're leaning against a rock that has a carving of what looks to me like Mendelssohn. Is that right? It is Mendelssohn. Yes, it is. Where is that? It's in Berlin. And actually, there's a, there's even a U-Bahn station, you know, the, the subway station that is Mendelssohn Bartholdi Park. And that's a park right next to this. It's in central Berlin, um, where unfortunately the only real link to Mendelssohn is this rock with his face carved into it very nicely, I might add. Um, and it was pretty frigid when we were taking that picture. It looks like it. Um, I was in Berlin as well as Leipzig about five years ago with a group of our listeners, and I somehow we missed that rock, but we did get to uh, go into Mendelssohn's house for a concert. and. Uh, and feel that connection there. Absolutely exists. At the beginning of our conversation, I was talking about why we don't hear Mendelssohn so much in concert, but of course, recordings make up for that. And I wonder if you're aware that just a few days ago, Decca released another Mendelssohn concerto disc. It seems like a Mendelssohn year, indeed. It's amazing. I'm, yeah, it's fantastic. And of course, there are no we don't collude to make these plans, but it's great to see that, that others have the same sort of inspiration from Mendelssohn's music. Right. Um, Roberto Proceda, um, yeah. soloist on that one. And there's also a great historical version that was just released too. So, I mean, we have really so much selection now from very little to a lot over the course of a few weeks. Jan, maybe 
your recordings and those of your colleagues will help inspire um, um, live audiences to experience um, the Mendelssohn concertos. And in the meantime, uh, very eager to share your new recording with our listeners here on All Classical Portland. Thank you very much for having me and for speaking with me. It was a pleasure.